Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Dear Lord, as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to us as we approach you, Lord, the living stone, that we be built up on your house together in love and unity and would not be mindful of our own will, our own kingdom, but mindful of your will, that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. What is it that drives you? What is it that you are passionate about? The thing that you long for? Because depending on what you are passionate about and depending on what you are longing for, it will determine how you act around other people. If you look at the first couple verses of this new chapter, as we learned about we are born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We've been born again into a new family. When you're born again, you are now saved through the blood of Christ Jesus by his death on the cross. Your sins have been paid for once and for all. And as you are born again, you are born again to a new family where you have your, uh, your God as your father. And likewise, you also have brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so depending on what you desire will determine whether or not you get along with the people around you. So look at the first couple of things that are listed in the very first verse. It says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. What do those things have in common? Malice, envy, deceit, evil speaking. Think about it. It's not just the fact that it's sin. The word malice is talking about being intentional in harming someone else. And people look at this list and say, malice is the thing you lay aside and malice takes forms in deceit, evil speaking, envy, etc. Now, thinking about malice, malice seems like a pretty broad category. So if we're talking about evil and sin, he's saying lay aside just sin, then why isn't he listing things like lay aside sexual promiscuity, lay aside your alcoholism, etc. Why, do, why doesn't he say that? It seems that this list is pretty specific. So then, knowing it's about malice, it's about doing intentional harm against other people, what is it that these things have in common? 
Well, I'll give you the answer since you were asking. These things, what they have in common is the fact that these are the things that you do when you don't get your way. And when other people seem to be in the way of what it is that you truly desire. Think about it. We'll take the first one. All deceit. If your primary goal in life is to be admired by everyone, that is the utmost thing that you treasure, even above being a morally good person. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to use any means necessary in order for people to admire you. You'll lie. I mean, how many times have you like, anyone like get a really good sale, you bought a t-shirt and it, you got it for like 10 bucks instead of 20, but you tell everyone $5. Has anyone ever done that before? I do that all the time. I don't know why I do it. It's just like, what's wrong with me? I didn't have to lie. It was still a good deal if I said $10, but I said five. And there's something within us. It's like, it's not enough that I save money. I need to brag about it to somebody else. And so when you deceive people, you deceive them because you want them to admire you, perhaps. And so other people that are in the way of that ultimate goal, you don't care what means necessary you take. Hypocrisy. Because you care about yourself, you care less about other people around you. And you'll tell them to obey the standards that you yourself don't meet. Because you think that you're ultimately better than everybody else anyway. Or you deserve to be better than everybody else. You are a special star that has just not been discovered yet. You're that special somebody that the world is just waiting to discover. And because of that, you know, I, your sins are justifiable. The reason why you deceive ultimately is just so that you can ultimately be recognized by everybody else and save the world by how awesome you are. And you'll use any means necessary. And when other people do the same wrongs that you do, it doesn't really matter. Because after all, you are the greatest human being on earth. Envy is another one. Why do you envy other people? It's when they have what you want. And when they have what you want, what do you do? You do the last one, which is evil speaking. I can't stand that person anyway. They really don't deserve all those things. She doesn't, she doesn't deserve that guy. If only he knew who she really was. Right? We start speaking evil about other people because they have what we really want. So all these things are linked together in that when you are longing for your own success, your own admiration, for yourself to be raised up and everybody else to be humbled, for everybody else to kind of just, it doesn't really matter because you are the most important person in your life, you will take any means necessary. And this is where Peter says, listen. You are born into a new family, which means that you love one another. God doesn't have any favorites. And therefore, you should be who God has called you to be. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all these different things that take this form of intentionally, not unintentionally, but like you know deep down in your heart that you want to do these things to that person because you don't like them or because you want what they have. He says, you should lay it aside. And that word there, what it's actually meaning, if you do some word studies, is it's a taking off, almost like you're removing your T-shirt and you're putting on something else. So just as you would take an old T-shirt that doesn't fit you anymore, I was trying to wear it like, I want to look cooler. I'll just be, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm trying to look cooler. So I started looking through my wardrobe from eight years ago because I'm too cheap to buy anything new. 
And like sometimes I like bought these, I don't know what I was thinking, I bought like designer jeans like in 2007, 2008, but they don't fit me. They just don't. And I didn't even like, I, don't, I lost, I don't know. I'm basically the same weight I've been for like 10 years or something. But for whatever reason, it doesn't fit me anymore. And I try, like looked in the mirror, wore this coat. I was like, I, can, I can't make this work. So if you see me wearing like a really expensive coat next week that doesn't fit, you'll know why I was wearing it because I want to be cool. But just as you have to lay aside the clothes that don't fit you anymore, as a child of God, when you've accepted Christ into your life, there are actions that don't suit you anymore. Of course you would expect that of the world. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, why would you care about other people? And not saying like unbelievers don't care about other people, but you should be embracing the American dream, the pursuit of your own happiness. So if people start pursuing other people's joy, other people's happiness at their own expense, that doesn't really seem to make sense to the average American, the average person that lives in our society. So that being said, knowing that these clothes don't fit you anymore, lay it aside. It doesn't belong to you. Instead, there are other things that you should be wearing, other things that you should be putting on. I love what the NLT says. This is how it phrases these, all these verses. It says this. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, ba babe, I tried to say babes, but then I finished the word, babies. You must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have a taste of the Lord's kindness. So what he's saying here is there is something else that you should be craving. Apart from your own success, your own admiration, your own like personal gain, there's something else that if you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, you're going to want that more than anything that this world has to offer. Because you know it's more fulfilling. And so when he uses this analogy, say newborn babe, babies, what he's saying is not you're new believers, you just got saved and etc. He's not saying that. What he's saying is he's using this analogy to say just as a newborn baby craves, desires, and cries out for milk, you in the same way should be crying out for spiritual nourishment. So think about this. When's the last time that you recognized that you were spiritually starving and therefore was crying out in response? You see that in the Bible where there's the psalmist who's honest and says, why are you so far from me? He recognizes there's a problem. He doesn't have constant communication with his creator. And so likewise, if we are taking on these other attitudes and actions that aren't becoming of us, could it be because we haven't found the new clothes we're supposed to put on? Could it be you haven't found what you were truly meant to be arrayed in? So that being said, we are to desire the pure milk, the pure spiritual milk, that is, of the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We found that in the last chapter. That when you taste and see that the Lord is gracious, taste and see that the Lord is good, you're not going to desire anything else. I love what the writer of James says about this. He says this. When you argue, when you, when you quarrel, when you fight, he says this. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? 
Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and war wage war to take it away from them. Yet, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So here, James gives us insight into the human experience, and that is this. That if you are fighting, if you are kicking and screaming, and you're trying to push other people down so that you can be lifted up, if you are trying to get your way, if you're envious, if you're jealous, all these different things, that is because you haven't recognized what it means to be you. And you haven't recognized what God has created you to do. Think about this. God has no favorites. He's not the father that secretly has his favorite kid and just says, hey, you're my favorite kid. Hey, no, we don't have any favorites or whatever they say to you. This heavenly father, literally, the Bible says he has no favorites. He doesn't. He loves all of us equally. Now, if that's true, then that means that the gifting I see in so-and-so can't be any greater than the gifting that he's given me. Now, I'm not to say that God doesn't give any different capacities, different measures of faith to some, because that's what the Bible says. But it's not like God loves one person more than he does you. So if God wants to use Elijah, and this is what the book of James says, Elijah was a mere man, and he prayed, and it stopped raining. And then he prayed again, and it started raining again. So if Elijah has access to God in that kind of way, why don't we access God in the same way in our prayer life? So all that to say, we are to be content with what God has given us. But that means something else. If we are to be content with God's given us, we first have to know what God has given us. You have to know who God has created you to be. You have to have a fresh vision of God. And if you have a fresh vision of God, this is what it does. You suddenly don't care what everyone else has. Isn't that true? If you know what God has given you, you don't care what everybody else has. At the gas station, years ago, I used to always get the most tips around Christmas. And Christmas Eve, I would always ask to work with my friend Jesse. And as we would work, people would give me candy canes during work. You know, they would give me, uh, they would tip me when I was pumping gas, whatever. And I would always have like candy canes, chocolate, cookies. And he'd turn around and every five seconds, he's like, where did you get that? And he wouldn't get anything. And he would always be upset. And so he's like, man, dude, I made the most tips I've ever made in my entire career as a gas station attendant. I made $60. And then I was like, I made 110. <laughs> Literally, that's what I made, $110 in one shift. That's the most I ever made as a gas station attendant. I was good. And so he got so mad. He's like, oh, I wish I didn't know that because now I feel like a loser. But anyway, the problem with that analogy is, is, is God doesn't give people more money than others. It's not like God loves you more and so you're going to get more tips or whatever. But in a similar way, when you know what you have and you're content with it, you don't need to know what everybody else has. The reason why my friend was upset is because he had something lesser of lesser value than what I had. But the fact of the matter is, if God distributes to all equally, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust then we have nothing to complain about. Then it's just the question of what has God called you to do and who has God called you to be. 
You are afraid when everyone else gets a girlfriend and you're the only person left who does not. Because you start to wonder, will I ever find anyone? Maybe I'm destined to be single forever. Right? And so because of that, now you start searching on Christian Mingle. Hopefully not. Now you start searching, you know, you're at Starbucks. I don't know where you hang out. And you're like looking around and like, could that be the one? Every time a, a girl talks to you, you're suddenly thinking like, maybe this is the one. It's because you're not content to know that God has appropriate time set for you. But when you know that, it doesn't matter. When you know that you are going on vacation. I've said this to someone who quoted this on the winter retreat in her testimony. But if you know that you're going on vacation to Paris, to France, you're going overseas, and it's going to be an exciting vacation, and that's guaranteed, you don't need to know what everyone else is doing. It doesn't even matter because you're looking forward to that vacation. And so even if you have to bear through some tests, boring tests that your teachers are making you take or whatever, it doesn't really matter because you're excited about something that you have set aside for you. So then the question is, do you know what God is calling you to do? Well, how do you know? How would you know what God has called you to be and created you to be? Well, that comes from one thing and one thing only, and that is the word of God. The pure spiritual milk that will help you to grow into a full experience of salvation, it says in the NLT. So we as Christians are not to be complacent, but we are to be content. In other words, complacency means just like, I don't really care about life, whatever, I'll just stay the same. Contentment means I am willing to stay where I am now, but I want more. I want more of Jesus. I want more of what's really mine and what God has to offer me. So, Contentment just has to do with wanting more of what God has already entrusted to you. Whereas complacency is more just believe, not believing that God has anything more than what you currently have. That might be a note that you want to write down because that was good. All right, continuing. Verse 4. Let's just pull the Levi, let's go. Sorry. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, the word of God that you may grow thereby, if indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So thinking about this, thinking about our need for growth, as we said before, do we cry out for it? Because babies, when they want milk, they want it now. And they expect it to come now. And they will cry until they receive it. So that brings up another question. Have you tasted have you experienced God? And we talk about this a lot, and maybe that's been confusing for you. Where you're earnestly desiring an experience with God, but you're not exactly sure what that actually looks like or what that actually means. When I was at the Youth Workers Conference this past week, yesterday in a coffee shop at the Bible College in California, I was sitting down talking to one of the guys that I've been discipling and mentoring, and we want to talk on a more regular basis. So I was just encouraging him about faith and experience. And a guy comes over and asks if he can sit in our conversation. I said, sure, yeah, that's fine, cool. So he sat down and he wanted to be part of the conversation because he said that the things that we're talking about really were the things that he needed to hear. And I talk really loud, everybody knows that, so I guess it, it like helped me for once. Most of the time it's like 
people are just like, you, you can like be a little bit more quiet. We're in Dunkin' Donuts. It's really awkward. Everyone's looking at us. But it helped him. So the thing that we were talking about is experience and faith. Your experience has to be grounded in your faith, not your faith grounded in your experience. And this is what I mean by that. Picture it like a house. If your foundation is faith in God, faith in the word of God, then the experience you put on that foundation can make it a beautiful house. A robust house full of life, full of a story. And you can tell other people about how great that house is. However, if you flip it around, now the faith is based in an experience. Here's the problem. Experiences fade. If parts of the house get broken down, the roof comes off, you can always rebuild the house. If the foundation is destroyed, what are you going to do? So think about this. If your experience is eroded and that happens to be your foundation, the entire house comes down. So your experience, an experience with God, him showing himself to you, making himself real to you, must be first grounded in your faith, not your faith based on your experience. And this is what I mean by that in a practical sense. A lot of people are saying, I want to experience God so I can believe that he's real. And so what you're praying is, Lord, show yourself to me so I can believe in you. And that is not how it's supposed to work out. Because when you do that, this is what happens. You have an experience, but then the experience comes into question. I know God spoke to me at the retreat. His voice was so clear. I had this word of confirmation because I read this Bible verse and this guy said this, and then I just knew it was God. Or I was worshiping, I just had this peace that surpasses understanding that came into my heart and just felt good, felt warm, it was awesome. But then a week goes by and it's like, was that legit? I don't really know. Because I just, maybe it was just the way that the atmosphere was. Maybe it was my feelings. I don't know. And when you question that experience, now you've lost your faith because your faith has been based in your experience. It's because of the experience that now I have faith. However, if you start with faith, Lord, you said in your word in Hebrews chapter 11, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must first that believe that he is, in other words, he exists, and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Now, when you reverse it, this is what happens. God, I believe that you're real. And because I believe that you're real, I know you're going to show yourself to me. Abraham went out into the land he was called to go, not knowing where he was going because he listened to the voice of the Lord. So I said to him this, that, that kid who had you know, the questions. My friend left and then he stayed behind. I talked to him for like a half hour. And in that, I said this, because he said he was struggling with anxiety. And as he was struggling with anxiety, he wanted an experience with God. He wanted God to show himself, bringing that peace, etc. And I, I said this to him, why is it that children are afraid of the dark? Why are we afraid of the dark when we're little? It's because we don't know what's in the dark. And when we don't know what's in the dark, we become afraid. Maybe there's a monster. Maybe there's a pointy object. I don't know. And because of that, we refuse to walk into the dark. Now you can do one of two things. You can say, Lord, I pray that you turn on the light so I can see what's in the dark. And that is control. That is, I need to know exactly what's in the dark in order to walk. Otherwise, I won't. Or you can have the other thing. Lord, I need you to tell me where to walk in the dark. Now, if you have that scenario, this is what happens. 
you have trust. You can have one control or you can have one trust. However, if you want control of all the situations, here's what you find. You will never be in full control because there will always be variables that you can control because you're not God. So if you say, Lord, I need you to tell me my future. And he says, okay, I'll show you what's going to happen tomorrow. Okay, I want to know what's going to happen in two days so I can plan it out. All right, three days. Lord, I need you to tell me who I'm going to marry. Okay, I need you to tell me what they're like. You need to tell me what they, you know. And it's just an endless cycle because you need control and you don't trust God. However, if the reverse is true, now this is what happens. Lord, I trust you no matter what I know and what I don't know. In that circumstance, you build a characteristic and you build up your faith. And now you can walk in the dark following the voice of God regardless of whether you can see or not. Because you know, the psalmist says, even if the dark falls upon me, even the night shall be light about me because he is with me. God sees in the dark as clearly as he sees in the light. It doesn't matter to him. It doesn't make a difference. And so when he sees in the dark, he can tell you exactly what's happening. Have you ever thought about this? Everyone look up here. There are probably, I would imagine, we'll probably find out when we get to heaven. There are probably so many things that we are saved from on a daily basis that God prevents from harming us that we don't know about. How many tornadoes did God prevent from wrecking through New Jersey? How many shooters did God prevent from being able to uh, kill us off or whatever? How many dangers has God pr protected us from, but we don't know about it because we don't have God's point of view? And if we did know that, it'd probably stress us out like crazy. We wouldn't be able to function. Like, oh my gosh, there's just so many more dangers than I already thought were already there. But when you trust someone, you don't need to fear. In fact, the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. So I would say that all that to wrap this up and say this. Experience must be grounded in trust, in faith, not the other way around. And that means if you have an opportunity for fear, that also means you have an opportunity for trust. And as you trust God, he will draw near to you. And that is your opportunity to draw near to God. It is in the dark that you have a chance to listen to the voice of God. It is when you can't see that you have the ability to trust the one who does see. Or you can try to take matters in your own hands, which will always wind up bad because you don't have God's point of view and you don't have God's power. So you can't solve the world's problems. So that being said, what can we do to know the voice of God? And that is simply this. Be in the word of God each and every day. Read the Bible. The word of God is right here on every single page. It is his words being pressed into the pages of scripture. The Bible says that all of scripture is God-breathed, inspired. And it's profitable for all those things that I can't remember because I didn't memorize the verse. So that being said, God spoke and we hear and 1 Peter says it's the pure spiritual milk, meaning there's no additives. This thing is cage-free. This thing has no hormones injected. This is the pure, unadulterated word of God. And because of that, you know there are no errors in it. There's nothing in this book that will ever deceive you. If you ever wanted to know any answer to the questions of life that are important, all you have to do is open the book 
and find out what he says about the subject. Now, if you're looking for answers to math problems, it's not going to be in here because that's not the purpose. But anything that actually matters in life, you can find guidance from God himself by just spending time with him. So I would say this. Make sure that 2016 is the year that you read the Bible every day. Form that habit. Whether it's one verse, one chapter a day. But you sit down and you say, you know what? I want to make this year the year that I get in God's word so I know exactly what he's called me to be. And when, he knows, when you know what God's called you to be, you don't look at everybody else. You stop the evil speaking. You stop the envy because you're all part of a team. You're all part of God's house being fitted together as we're going to see in the next couple verses. But first we approach, verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. So we're approaching to him, Jesus, as a living stone. He is the chief cornerstone, the foundation. And when we read the word of God, we're coming to him. We're coming to know God. Now it says a living stone, which is an interesting analogy because stones aren't living. They're inanimate objects. But what he's saying here is, if the temple is the body of Christ and we are God's temple... Think about what a temple is. Think about just a church building. You come here, these stones aren't alive, those bricks aren't alive, but there's something fundamentally different about Jesus. And so the Jewish people looking at this verse would know exactly what he's talking about. He's saying you guys have been enacting for centuries these old practices of uh, performing sacrifices, rituals, keeping Sabbaths, keeping feasts, doing all these religious things, but this is different because Jesus is a living temple. It's not this distant God from, with this distant religion, but you actually, in coming to the word of God, approach the person of Jesus. It's never about, I need to read the Bible this many times, this many days. I need to read four chapters a day to make my schedule. It's just, I need to spend time with Jesus each and every day, period. And when that's your goal, everything changes. Because now it's not, oh, I didn't memorize a verse. Oh, man, I feel bad. Oh, God's going to hate me because I didn't read my Bible today. You should read your Bible every day, but it's different because now it's about, I just want to enjoy Jesus every single day. And if that means reading five chapters, if that means reading one chapter, I want to make it something I do every day because it's that important. And because I love him, I want to hear his voice. I long for it. I cry out for it. And if I don't know what I'm supposed to do in life, I want to search the scriptures because they testify of him. So coming to Jesus, the living stone, also means this. Verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So as we approach God, here's the other thing. We also approach each other. Because he says in verse 4 that Jesus is chosen by God and precious, but in, indeed rejected by men. And as you become more like Jesus and you don't act like the people of the world, as you throw away those old clothes, you get rid of the gossip, you get rid of the envy, they have no one to gossip with. You don't fit in the world anymore. But you fit together with the people of God. Because you're building this spiritual house. 
As Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the foundation, just like we talked about faith and experience, Jesus is at the bottom of the house. We are stones being fitted together. Now, that's a really weird picture because you never think of like, what, is, what do living stones look like? What does a temple full of living people that are built together look like? You're not meant to really visualize it as much as know that when you come to church, it's not about this building. It's about the people around you. And when you think in those terms, you bring the light of Christ wherever you gather. Impact light, living in God's house together. It doesn't have to be in this building, but as you go and hang out with your friends, even people that don't know Jesus, where you have two or more gathered, Jesus is in the midst of you, and you can bring that community together to impact the world for Christ. Each and every one of you has an influence. You have an ability to communicate the love of Jesus to somebody else. And when you team up with somebody else, now you're taking two different callings and putting them together for the common goal and common cause. You have companies, corporations, where you have office spaces together. For what reason? So you can all collaborate on a project and work together. And it's much easier if you're there in person sharing an office space than if you're far off and you have to Skype or you're in a different country or different town. It's a lot easier if you're just there together collaborating on how you can work together for a common goal, common cause. And when you gather as the church together to talk about Jesus, that is a powerful thing that's happening in that moment. And so we are being built up together a spiritual house that are offering different kinds of sacrifices. No longer is it about sacrificing goats, rams, sheep, and killing animals to cover our sins, now the, off, the offering that we present, it says, is spiritual sacrifices. What do those look like? They look like praises. They look like you enjoying one another's fellowship and sharing in that love, and that is the sacrifice, the true sacrifice that God, check this out, God has been looking for all along. You ever think about that? God never desired the blood of goats and rams. He desired the praises of his people, the joy and love of his people to be the sacrifice that is presented as a sweet-smelling aroma to Christ. God had been looking forward from eternity past to the moment that his son Christ would be able to come into the world, die on the cross for our sins so that we could be part of his family adopted and built together to create a temple that could glorify him. And that's what you have the opportunity to do as you draw near to him in his word and draw near to each other. Which also means this. A church is only as alive as the people inside. If the church is dead, if the church is boring, could it possibly be because you are boring? Because you are dead. And that is not a ridicule. That's not an insult as much as, as, as it is an exhortation. We often come to church and look at everybody else and, and figure out like, this is what that person needs to work on. That person's a jerk. I hate Alan, etc. But which clothes are you wearing? Are you wearing the old man clothes? The ones that don't fit you anymore? The awkward clothes that you try to like fit in to be cool with everybody else and you can fit in with everybody else, but they don't fit you? Because then you'd be a hypocrite. You point at someone else and like you can't stand that person. Well, maybe they can't stand you for the exact same reason. Sometimes we stay away from church 
It's like, oh man, I can't believe that that person did that. So I'm, I'm going to stay away from them because they're so like exclusive. Well, when you do that, you're excluding somebody else. So we need to recognize that we all play a part in the sinful story of creation. And we can all participate in the wonderful redemption of Jesus's love. So if the church is born, recognize church doesn't mean building. Church means the body of Christ. And so the church is not bricks. The church is not drywall. The church is you, a collection of yous. And when you put yous together, that's what makes a church. So if the church is dead, that's because you don't have the life of Christ inside of you. That's because we are not sharing in that love. Verse 6, we're going to close out. Verse 7, actually. No, 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So, a couple of things I want to point out here before we close. It says in verse 7, it's kind of confusing. It says, therefore to you who believe he is precious. Actually, if you look at the meaning of that verse, you look at the verbs and whatever, things you don't need to know. What it's actually saying is, this is an honor that's bestowed on you because you've trusted in God. That's the sense of the verse. I don't know how I got confused like that. But you see that in the context of the one right before that. It says, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So check this out. Why is it that if you commit your life to Jesus, that you will never be put to shame? Well, that's because you've placed your faith in the chief cornerstone, the one who is eternal, who lives and abides forever. He's the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why is that? Why does it say that he'll never leave you nor forsake you? Because you have been literally built upon the foundation of Christ. As living stones, you've all played a part and you've all been built on top and sealed and cemented on top of the foundation of Christ. And there's nothing that can come in and destroy that house because that is a house that is eternal. So knowing that, when you place your faith in Jesus, you'll never be put to shame. He won't leave you nor forsake you. You're built on top of him. You are part of the body of Christ. You are his church and he loves you. He is your, he is your husband and you are his bride. And he's returning for each and every one of us because of his great love for us. However, if you look at verse 8, if you are not accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that same stone that you could be built upon becomes a stone that you trip upon. It says in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Now, if you're a person that chooses those old clothes, I don't care how ridiculous I look, I want to be cool. I don't care how, you know, true this is. I want to do my own thing, pursue my own way. God's not going to get in the way of you, but you're going to get in the way of God. And that's when you stumble over and trip over the rock that is Jesus. There is not one person on the face of the earth that will end their life 
without encountering God in some way. Whether it's revelation from creation, whether it's revelation through his word, or it's having an actual encounter with God, we'll never be able to say at the end of our life, Jesus, I just didn't even know you existed. So the question is, what will you do with the knowledge that you've been given? If you haven't made the choice to make Jesus your Lord and Savior today, up till this day, what's holding you back? What would keep you from doing that? Because at the end of time, God's going to say to some people, your will be done and let them have their way and be placed in hell for all eternity. Or his people say, Lord, your will be done. I want to follow you. And those are they that become adopted into his family, adopted into this family, and are able to experience that joy and bliss in heaven where God is. Heaven is just where God is. And the only reason why heaven is great is because God is great. And we get to be in the presence of God. But if you want nothing to do with God, then he's going to leave you to yourself. But that means that he's going to take all of his good things away from you because they're all his to begin with. And the only reason why you have those things is because you borrowed them from God in the first place. The breath that you have, the life that you have, everything that you have has been borrowed from God since he is your creator. I heard this analogy. When people say, why do I have to believe in Jesus? Can't I just be a good person? Why, do, why is it that I have to go to church? Why, why is it that I have to follow God? Think about this. Imagine you are going away to college. And as you are going away to college, you decide, as you have all of your parents' money and they send you off for free, you go off and say, you know what? I'm going to live a good life and never speak to my parents ever again. Now you're a great moral person. You live righteously. You do nice things for other people. You try not to get in other people's way. You don't murder, certainly. You're a good person. But isn't there something wrong about not giving thanks to the people that sent you? to your parents, to whom you owe the gratitude, who sent you off to college, who fed you, who bathed you, who clothed you all throughout your life. Don't you owe something to that person? It's not enough to just be a good person, quote unquote. You ought to give thanks to the person who provided the way for you. How much more the God who created you? I didn't make up that analogy, by the way. It's R.C. Sproul. So why don't we bow our heads tonight, close your eyes.